0: First Church. If you're new here, my name is Chad, and we're so glad that you decided to worship with us today. We are one church that meets in more than one location, so every single weekend we have family who join us from Stone Canyon. well so as others who join us online, so if you would put your hands together, welcome them into our time of study here this morning. And I'm excited because today we're going to wrap up our modjnik series. Before we do that, there's another reason why I'm excited. It is our t-shirt giveaway day, so every single person who's here today is going to get the brand new First Church t-shirts that we just uh, put out and they're free, all you gotta do is leave and as you leave today, don't leave yet, but as you leave at the end of service, you can pick one up and it's got uh, Love Jesus, Love Light Jesus, our mission statement on the front with our church logo and then on the back we've got the name of our church and we want to give this to you as a gift, but we also want to give it to you for another purpose, we want this to be a conversation starter, wear it out in our community, when people ask you about it, uh, that's a chance for you to tell them what God is doing here at First Church, so wear it proudly and go out and love like Jesus, but we have one for everybody today. Make sure you pick one up before you leave. You guys know that I love being a dad, and one of my favorite parts of being a dad is being able to play games with my kids. Whether it's playing tag and hide and go seek around our house, or making up a game, whether it's playing a board game at the kitchen table, or playing football or basketball with Alex or tea party with Addy, I love playing games with my kids. And if your kids or grandkids are like mine, they probably enjoy playing games as well. The other day, I came across a video of some siblings who were playing the game King of the Hill. Anybody play King of the hill when you were a kid yeah a good number of you and these siblings these two sisters were playing and they're actually at a kind of a gym area that had a foam pit and they were trying to knock each other off take a look at what happened they're playing this game and they're jousting back and forth and they're trying to see who's going to stay on top and finally one sister knocks the other one off and then she turns on her little brother and she takes him out now don't worry The little brother was not hurt. He was fine. He fell into a foam pit. He was just fine. And it was the mom who put that video up online and it went viral. So he's good. Don't worry about him. But one thing you can definitely say about that sister is that she was willing to do whatever it took to get on top. Now, I don't know if you played King of the Hill as a kid, but I bet you've seen King of the Hill play out in life because it's not just a children's game. Actually, when it comes to our culture, our world, it's a way of life. We want to do whatever we possibly can to get on top. You guys know this. The culture we live in, the world we live in, it is status-obsessed. No one wants to be at the bottom of the social ladder. Everybody wants to be at the top. You know why? Because at the top, that's where power is. That's where influence exists. That's where authority is. In our world today, people want to do whatever it takes to get to the top because they believe that's where they will find meaning and satisfaction. And so people will run others over, climb over them, run through them to get to the top. They will lie, cheat, and steal to get to the top because nobody wants to be on the bottom. Everybody wants to be on top. Everyone that is except Jesus See, our world tells us, lie, cheat, steal, do whatever it takes to get on top, look out for number one, but Jesus came to teach us a different way of life. 2,000 years ago, Jesus came teaching us a way to live that sounds very different, very backwards from King of the Hill, but it's the best way to live. See, we've been in this series for the past six weeks, which we're calling Majnik. And Modjnik isn't just a fun word to say, though it is. Mojnik also has some significance. It's the word kingdom backwards. Because Jesus invites us to be part of his backwards kingdom, his inside out, upside down, radically different countercultural kingdom. And in the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus teaches us to pray this prayer: your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. In other words, Jesus teaches teaches us to pray for what's up there in heaven to come down here we should want for God's kingdom to be lived out in our lives just as it is carried out in heaven and honestly that's what we all want deep down whether we realize it or not because the stuff that we hate and we despise on earth is the stuff that is noticeably absent from heaven I mean heaven is a place where there is no prejudice no hate no addictions Heaven is a place where there's no pain, no suffering. Heaven is a place where there's no abuse. Heaven is a place where there's no lying or stealing. Heaven is a place where there's no slander or gossip. And don't we all want to live in a place like that? Don't we all want to live in a kingdom like that, live a life like that? And Jesus says you don't have to wait until you die to live a life like that. You can start to experience that life now. God's kingdom can start to break into your life now. That's why he says later on in the Sermon on the Mount, Matthew 6, verse 33, Seek the kingdom of God above all else and live righteously, and God will give you everything you need. In other words, when you seek God's kingdom now, that's in the present tense. When you seek God's kingdom way of life now, the joy of heaven will invade the sadness of your life. The hope of heaven will invade the apathy of your life. The peace of heaven will invade the chaos of your life. His kingdom will be lived out in your life. It doesn't mean your life is going to be perfect. It doesn't mean there won't be any problems. It doesn't mean that if you live for God's kingdom, the life's all of a sudden going to get easier. He doesn't say he's going to give you everything you want. He says you start to live for God's kingdom, he'll give you everything you need, meaning your soul will be satisfied because you will live in relationship with him. But in order to have all that, in order for God's kingdom to break into your life, you've got to live differently. You've got to live his way of life, and his way of life is very different from the way of life that's been handed down to us from this world. In fact, sometimes it makes us feel very uncomfortable, but Jesus is teaching us it's exactly what we need. We need to be rewired because the cookie-cutter existence that's been handed down to us from this world, it isn't working. And so throughout this series, we've been talking about many different subjects when it comes to God's kingdom, how to live for His kingdom way of life, and a lot of the stuff we've been talking about, it sounds backwards, but today we're going to talk about something that really sounds backwards, at least from how we've been wired in this world, and it's this. We're going to discuss how in Jesus' kingdom, you descend into greatness. In other words, in Jesus' kingdom, if you live for his way of life, you don't promote yourself, you deny yourself. It's not the first who are first, but it's the last who are first. You don't exalt yourself, but you choose to humble yourself. In Jesus' kingdom, you descend Into greatness. And that sounds very different from what we hear in our culture, out in our world. And yet, it's one of the first statements that Jesus uses when he starts off the Sermon on the Mount. Very early on, one of the very first statements Jesus says in Matthew chapter 5 is this He says, Blessed are the humble, for they will inherit the earth. Now, I know that sounds nice and beautiful and kind of poetic, and yeah, that's a, that's a good statement there, but I know what you're thinking. That's not how life works. Practically speaking, that's not how life works. The humble don't get ahead. The humble are left behind, and I'm sure that's what Jesus' first listeners were thinking as well when he said that. Jesus, yeah, that sounds great and everything, and we all would like for people to be more humble, but the humble are left behind. The humble get walked on. The humble get destroyed. That's not really how life works. And yet, Jesus doesn't back away from this. He continues to teach that the blessed life is the humble life. And he goes on to say this He goes on to teach, So in everything, do to others what you would have them do to you. For this sums up the law and the prophets. Now, this is sometimes referred to as the golden rule, and you've probably heard it before. Jesus says, so in everything, in every situation, in every circumstance, in everything, and he means everything, do to others what you would have them do to you. In other words, treat others as you want to be treated, and then Jesus says, this sums up all of God's law. This sums up all of God's commands. This sums up God's will for your life. Now, I want you to notice what Jesus didn't say. Jesus didn't frame the golden rule in the negative. He didn't say, don't do to others what you wouldn't want them to do to you. You know why he didn't word it like this? Because you can do absolutely nothing and still keep this command. You can go home and sit on your couch and never leave it and still keep this command because you know what this command is all about? Refraining from being unkind or unloving. That's not what Jesus is talking about. Jesus isn't saying just refrain from being unkind or unloving. Jesus says do to others. It's in the active sense. Jesus is saying go out and be intentional about doing good to others even when they don't return that good to you. Jesus is saying be proactive in going out and treating people better than they deserve to be treated. Jesus is telling us to go do something because he knows that in his kingdom, in order to be great, you have to go out and put others first. And this is something we have to be intentional about. And I wonder, how well are we doing that? How well are we going out and pursuing the good of others and instead of promoting ourselves, lifting others up? I mean, this is a theme that Jesus hits on all throughout the Sermon on the Mount. Let me give you a few examples. Look back in Matthew chapter 5 with, with me and look at what he says. If someone forces you to go one mile, go with him two miles. Now, Jesus here is speaking about uh, the command, the law, that if a Roman soldier asks you to carry his stuff, his belongings, for a mile, uh, you had to do it. And Jesus is saying, if a Roman soldier asks you to carry his stuff for a mile, don't just go one mile with him. Don't just do the bare minimum, go the extra mile. And no one did that. Everybody hated this law that you had to carry a Roman soldier's stuff. No one did that, and yet Jesus said, you do that. Because in my kingdom things are different. And when you do that, it's going to stand out to that Roman soldier. It's going to stand out to everybody around you. And they're going to say, what's up with that? And that gives you a chance to show that person love that they don't deserve. Look at this next example in Matthew chapter 6. Jesus says, forgive other people when they sin against you. Now I want you to notice, Jesus doesn't say, forgive people when they apologize. Forgive people when they're sorry. Forgive people when they deserve to be forgiven. Jesus says, forgive people when they sin against you. Don't wait for them to apologize. You choose to forgive them. You know why? Because that's how you want to be treated, right? Look at this next example in Matthew chapter 5. Again, in the Sermon on the Mount. Love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you. Don't just love those who love you back. Love those who don't love you back. Go out and love your enemies. Pray for those who persecute you. Who does that? Nobody. Unless you're part of Jesus' kingdom. Jesus is saying intentionally go out and do good to everyone, even those who don't deserve it, even to those who don't love you back. Now, Jesus isn't saying that we should intentionally harm ourselves or have a poor self-image. That's not what he means by being humble or humility. In fact, I have a friend who often says this. He says, humility isn't thinking less of yourself. It's thinking of yourself less. That's what Jesus is getting at here. Jesus is saying, take the attention off yourself. Take the focus off yourself and focus on others because life isn't all about just promoting you but about humbling and denying yourself so that you can lift others up. And in lifting others up, you'll have the opportunity to introduce them to Jesus who can change their life. Now, practically speaking, that's a lot easier said than done. Because we get it. Do to others what you want them to do to you. Treat others as you want to be treated. That's simple to understand. It's not hard for us to get. But it's more difficult to live out. And oftentimes it's because the focus, our focus is wrong. Our focus is on ourselves and not on others. And it's not just hard for us to get, this was hard for Jesus' first followers, his closest followers and friends to get, his disciples. See, after Jesus preaches this famous Sermon on the Mount, which we've been studying in this series, Jesus then hangs out with his disciples for another couple years. And his disciples, you know, guys like Peter, James, and John, Thomas, and others, they get to hang out with Jesus for two-plus years after this, and they get to hear him teach over and over again. They get to witness him do miracles. And as they listen to Jesus teach, they will hear him say over and over again, in my kingdom, greatness comes through serving. The way that you become great is to put yourself last and to lift others up. And Jesus will say this over and over again, and it's like they just don't get it. I mean, listen to some of the things that Jesus says throughout his ministry, and the disciples hear this. If you look in the Gospel of Luke, Jesus says, for everyone who exalts himself will be humbled, and he who humbles himself will be exalted. In other words, don't exalt yourself, don't promote yourself, humble yourself, and then God will exalt you when you humble yourself. Jesus goes on to teach in the Gospel of Mark. He says, if anyone wants to be first, he must be the very last and the servant of all. You want to be first in God's eyes? Put yourself last and serve people. That's what greatness looks like in my kingdom. That's what greatness looks like in God's eyes. And yet, even though Jesus said stuff like this over and over and over again, it's like the disciples just couldn't get it. It wasn't sinking in. One of the best pieces of technology that we have in our house is our DVR. It works with our cable. I'm not exactly sure how it works, but I love it because we are never home to watch the shows that we want to watch, so we record everything. And that's that's true about the shows that Alice and I like to watch together. It's also true about sporting uh, sports uh, because a lot of times the games that I want to watch are not on at the time that I'm home. And I'm not sure if you guys are aware of this, but I'm a big Kentucky basketball fan. I know that may be a shock to some of you. And so I never miss a game, but sometimes I don't get to watch them live. I mean, we live busy lives when my kids are in activities and sports and Alice and I are busy, got church stuff going on. So I don't always get to watch the games live like I want to but I always record them and this is what I like to do. I don't want to know the score. I don't want anybody to tell me. I don't check my phone when I'm away from my TV not able to watch a game live. I have it recorded and I want to wait to get home to watch the game as if I'm watching it live. That's what I do every single time. And so it never fails. I'll be out with people while a game is on and so Somebody will walk up and they'll say, hey, Chad, you want to know the score of the game? And I'm like, don't tell me. I don't want to know. Are you, oh, it's a good game. Don't tell me. Don't hint. Don't tell me anything. I don't want to know. And the more I say that, it's like the more they want to tell me. They just keep coming back. Are you sure you don't want to know? Come on. You, you want to know, right? Come on. You can still watch it if you know. And they keep coming back. Listen, I have lost friends over that, okay? So don't ever do that to me. If there's a game on, don't tell me. If I'm not watching it, I'm going to be watching it so I will find out. At the appropriate time okay <laughs> but it's like the more I say don't tell me don't tell me the more some people just want to tell me it's like they're not listening and I think this is kind of how Jesus felt over and over and over again he talks about how greatness comes through service through serving other people and the disciples just don't seem to get it and this goes on until the very end of Jesus' life Jesus is on his way to Jerusalem to go to the cross and pay the price of the sins of all of mankind. And as he's headed to Jerusalem, two of his disciples, his closest friends, James and John and their mother, approach Jesus. Now again, they haven't been listening. They think when Jesus talks about going and dying on the cross, they think it's all figurative. And so they think Jesus is going to Jerusalem to overtake the Roman Empire, and he's going to go and lead a rebellion, and he's going to make the nation of Israel, the world superpower, and Jesus is going to go sit on a physical throne. That's what they're hearing, though Jesus has said none of that. And so Jesus is going to Jerusalem, and they know something big is getting ready to happen, so they see this as their opportunity. They think, here's our chance to get in with Jesus. Here's our chance to get some power when he ushers in his kingdom. And so James and John along with their mother approached Jesus and let's see how this plays out. Matthew chapter 20. Then the mother of Zebedee's sons, now that's James and John. Then the mother of James and John came to Jesus with her sons and kneeling down asked a favor of him, of Jesus. What is it you want, Jesus asked. She said, Grant that one of these two sons of mine may sit at your right and the other at your left in your kingdom. Now, what is James and John's mom asking for? She wants power and influence and authority for her sons, right? Again, she thinks Jesus is going to establish a physical kingdom, And so she asked Jesus, when you go and you start this kingdom and you sit on your throne, I want my boys on your right and your left. I want one to be your vice president and the other to be your secretary of state. I want them to have front row seats when you come into your kingdom. And Jesus is so epically and eternally patient with people. See, I think it's interesting that James and John's mom asked this question. Why didn't they ask? Because we find out later when we read and also when you look at Mark's gospel that James and John wanted this. They're the ones that put their mom up to this. Why was it their mother who asked the question? Well, what you need to know a little bit of the background, James and John's mom is Jesus' aunt. So they're probably thinking, well, he'll turn down us. We're cousins. But his sweet little old aunt, you know, they, he can't turn down auntie, you know, Zebedee. There's no way. But He does but he does so in a very graceful way. He goes on to say, if you read in this passage to James and John and their mother, you don't know what you're asking. He's so patient with us, isn't he? In other words, you don't quite get what you're asking. You don't know what you're talking about. You have the wrong idea of my kingdom, about my kingdom. You're not focused on what God's focused on. You're not valuing what God values. And so Jesus takes this as an opportunity to define greatness one more time for his disciples. And Look at what he teaches. Look at what he says. Matthew chapter 20, Jesus goes on to say, You know that the rulers of the Gentiles lord it over them. They lord their authority and power over other people, and their high officials exercise authority over them. Not so with you. It's not how it works in my kingdom. Not so with you. Instead, whoever wants to become great among you must be your servant, and whoever wants to be first must be your slave. Hang on to that word slave. It's important. Just as a son of man did not come to be served, but to serve, and to give his life as a ransom for many. The reason why I think this took so long to soak in for the disciples is because this was so totally opposite from everything they'd ever heard, from everything they'd ever seen. This was radically different from what their culture taught them because they lived in Roman culture. And the Roman culture, Roman society was a lot like ours. It was status-obsessed. And Roman culture had a very distinct social ladder, a very plain pecking order that everyone understood, everyone followed, everyone knew exactly where they belonged on the social ladder. And at the very top of the Roman social ladder was the emperor. He was at the top of the food chain. And when I say emperor, don't think president of the United States or king by our modern definitions. When I say emperor, what you need to picture is somebody who's worshiped as a god. Because a lot of people in Roman society, they believed that the emperor was God, a god in flesh. They believed that he was a god himself. Everywhere the emperor went, people would bow down and worship him. And they would shout out, Caesar is Lord, Caesar is Lord. But what's most important about this role of emperor is that he didn't have to answer to anyone. He was at the top of the food chain. But then underneath him was a group of 600 men who made up the Roman Senate. These were powerful, powerful politicians who controlled the commerce of the day. They controlled the business of the Roman Empire. They controlled the military. And they were an elite group of 600 men who were extremely powerful and extremely wealthy. But then underneath the Roman Senate was a group of men called the equestrians. And you can probably guess by their name what they did. They sold, traded horses. Horses, well, that was the most primary or the most prestigious form of transportation in this day. There's a lot of money in it. These guys were extremely wealthy. Now I know it's hard for us to imagine a culture that uh, where transportation, you know, is a status symbol. I know that's hard for us to imagine, but that was Roman culture. And then underneath the equestrians, you had the decurions. These were the philosophers, the educators of the day, the teachers. Now, what you need to understand is from this step up on the Roman social ladder, that made up only 2% of the entire Roman population. Only 2%. These were the elites of the elites, and everybody else was underneath them. So let's look at the rest of the 98%. Right underneath the the Decurans, this is probably where most of us would fit. These were the Roman citizens. Now, citizens had rights. Citizens had freedoms. They were able to vote. They were given due process of law. They were allowed to own property and land. They had certain rights and privileges that others below them didn't have. But then underneath the citizens, you had another group of people, an even larger group of people known as the freedmen. These were men who were free but they didn't have the same rights as citizens because they weren't official citizens of the empire, so they couldn't vote, they couldn't own land or property, they weren't given due process of law, but they were free, so they were, they were able to earn a living. But since they didn't own property, they had to live on the estate of someone else and work for a living. They were kind of like indentured servants. But then at the very bottom of the Roman social letter was, our were the slaves. The slaves... They were not just the largest group. They were the most abused group. Because slaves in this culture weren't considered people. They were property. You didn't have to have a reason to kill a slave. If you owned them, kill them for whatever reason you wanted to. Nobody would say anything to you. The only thing that a slave could do in this culture was obey. And the Romans like the Greeks before them, did not equate obedience with greatness. The whole point of life was to get to the highest rung on the ladder that you possibly could so that you obeyed less and less people. The more people you had to obey, the lower you were when it came to your status. You wanted to rise to the top so you didn't have to obey as many people. And their mindset, obedience was not a virtue. Submission was not a virtue, but a tragedy. And that's why the Greek philosopher Plato, he once wrote these words. How can a man be happy if he is a slave to anyone? No one wanted to be at the bottom. No one wanted to be obedient. They wanted to be people who gave out orders, not who submitted to orders, And so people did whatever they possibly could to rise to the top. And this pursuit of status, there was a Latin phrase to describe this pursuit of status. It's this, it was the cursus honorum, the race for honor. And this race for honor was so cutthroat, so competitive, that one Roman historian records how Mark Antony actually taunted Caesar Augustus, saying, you may have made it to the top, but you don't deserve it because you come from a family of freedmen and rope makers. Hey, you may have made it to the top, but you won't last there very long because you're not one of us. You haven't lived at the top long enough. You don't come from the right family background. Economic background. See, it took a long time to go up the ladder. It was almost impossible for some. But you could fall down the ladder at breakneck speed. And here's the thing. Everybody wanted to see you fall from grace. You know why? Because when you fell, that left more room at the top for them. Everybody wanted to see you fall. And there was a term for those who were at the bottom of the ladder those who were citizens and and those who were below the citizens that term was the personas mediocribus mediocre people not somebodies but nobodies and nobody wanted to be a nobody everybody wanted to be someone and so people did whatever they possibly could to move up the ladder Now keep this social order in mind as we listen again to what Jesus says to James and John in Matthew chapter 20. You know that the rulers of the Gentiles lorded over them and their high officials exercise authority over them. Not so with you. Instead, whoever wants to become great in God's eyes in my kingdom, whoever wants to become great among you must be your servant And whoever wants to be first must be your slave. For the Son of Man did not come to be served but to serve and to give His life as a ransom for many. Jesus says that in my kingdom if you want to be great it's not about promoting yourself but it's about denying yourself. Put priority on the needs of others. Shift your focus from yourself to others in and the culture that you live in, Gentile rulers, they may lord their authority over people, but not so with you. In my kingdom, it's different. In my kingdom, you descend to greatness. And here's the thing. Jesus isn't asking us to do anything he wasn't willing to do himself. Listen to what Paul says about Jesus in Philippians chapter 2. Philippians chapter 2, Paul writes this, and again, this is about Jesus, who being in very nature God, did not consider equality with God something to be grasped, but made himself nothing, taking the very nature of a servant. That word servant is the Greek word doulos, meaning slave taking on the very nature of a slave, the lowest on the Roman social ladder, being made in human likeness and being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself and became obedient to death, even death on a cross. Do you know what Paul's telling us here? Paul is saying Jesus is God. He was on the highest at the highest point of the cosmic social ladder he was on the very top of the cosmic social ladder and Jesus chose to give up his seat in heaven and come down to be with us. He chose to descend to be where we were, and he didn't just descend to be any man. He could have descended and been the emperor or maybe one of the social elites, but that's not what he chose to do. Jesus chose to come down the ladder, and he went all the way to the bottom, being a slave, choosing to be a slave on our behalf, choosing to serve us. But he didn't just become a slave. He went one step lower. He died. He became a crucified slave. And here's the thing. The only thing lower than a slave in Roman culture was a dishonored crucified slave. Only slaves were crucified in that day. And Jesus chose to die. He chose to come all the way down the ladder and even a step below for us. Why? Well, he tells James and John why back in Matthew chapter 20. He says, The Son of Man did not come to be served but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. When James and John heard that word ransom, they knew exactly what Jesus was talking about. That was the term that was used to pay the price of a slave in the first century world. So you and me, we were enslaved to sin. We were enslaved to our destructive tendencies and behavior. We were enslaved to our hurts, habits, and hang-ups. We were enslaved to our fears and anxieties. We were enslaved to our past. We're enslaved to our temptations. We are enslaved to the darkness around us. And Jesus came to let us know that we don't have to be enslaved anymore. He came to be our way out. He came to set us free. He came to serve as our ransom. And Jesus knew that the only price that could be paid to set you and me free was his very life. He chose to die. He was willing to die because he loved us so much that he couldn't stand seeing us enslaved. He loved us so much that he was willing to give up his very life so that we could live. I like to put it this way. Jesus came down the ladder so that he could bring us back up with him. He gave up his life so that we could have access to life. And I get it. The idea of the cross is completely countercultural. I mean, in what kingdom does the king give up his throne and die for his people who reject him, who turn against him, who rebel against him, who don't even act like they love him? What king does that? Only Jesus. He came down the ladder to bring us back up with him. He made his life all about our needs. And here's the thing. He calls us to do the same. How can you expect to be part of a kingdom where the kingdom comes all the way down the ladder and then us not do the same. See, Jesus teaches that real greatness isn't found at the top, but it's found in serving others. In Jesus' kingdom, you descend into greatness. And you might be thinking, well, that means that I'm going to have to be uncomfortable, and I'm going to have to get my hands dirty and make some sacrifices. And that's going to take a lot, Chad. That's easier said than done. Yep. But I want you to think about this. The worst thing that ever happened to Jesus was the best thing to ever happen to you. The worst thing that ever happened to Jesus was the best thing that ever happened for us. And yeah, we may go out in this world and get our hands dirty and feel uncomfortable and have to make sacrifices and all that kind of stuff. But as we do, as uncomfortable as it might make us feel, it could be the best day for someone else who's lost and far from God. Because it may be the first time they ever experienced the love of God in a powerful way. And I just wonder right now, are you looking for an opportunity to humble yourself, to take your focus off yourself and serve others as Jesus served you? I got to know a student in our student ministry here at First Church named Johnny some time ago. Johnny's mom came up to me on a Wednesday night after our Wednesday programming, and she said, can I tell you a story about loving like Jesus? I'm like, oh, yeah, sure. I love to hear stories when people love like Jesus. She said, well, actually, it's about my son, and I don't want to brag about him, but he's kind of blown us all away. And I'm like, well, sure, yeah, tell me about it. And she said, this past Christmas, we asked Johnny what he wanted for Christmas. Johnny thought about it for a while, and he said, you know, I think what I want is just some sweatshirts, some hoodies, that I can give to some homeless people in our area. And they said, well, that's great, and that's, you know, that's having a great heart and everything, but we want to get you something for Christmas. What do you want for Christmas? And Johnny said, I don't need anything. I just want to help out people that have less than I have. I just want some hoodies, sweatshirts that I can give out to some people who are homeless. His parents were touched by that, and they gave him those hoodies, and he got to pass them out, To homeless individuals, but word spread about what Johnny had asked for. And so different people started to donate to his family clothes that they could continue to give out. And in fact, as this mom was telling me the story about her son, she said, my car right now is full of clothes that people have given us. People from her workplace, friends of theirs. They had so many clothes they ended up having to take it to a homeless ministry to help distribute them. How awesome is that? And so I went to Johnny and I talked to him. I said, man, that's an awesome thing that you did this past Christmas. That's just really cool. And he looked at me and kind of shrugged and was kind of like, I think that's what Jesus would do. And I'm like, yeah, buddy, you're right. But I said, still, it was a big deal. He said, Yeah, you don't understand. This past Christmas was the best Christmas ever. Guys, you want to live the best life. want to live a full life, a satisfied life, I'll tell you where it starts, by emptying yourself, by humbling yourself, by being a servant to others, as Jesus has been for you. In Jesus' kingdom, you descend into greatness. If you want to live a full life, it starts with emptying yourself. Are you ready to come down the ladder? Would you pray with me? Father, I thank you for today and this chance we had to open up your word and study it. And we pray that we won't just listen to the words of Jesus, but that we will take it to heart, that his words will prick our hearts so that we're changed and transformed, so that we go out and love like him in this world. Father, may we look for opportunities to go out and serve others. And in so doing, in Jesus' name, we may have the opportunity to change people's lives. We thank you so much for coming to the earth for us. May we go out in love like you. In Jesus' name I pray, amen.